This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thank you to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and... You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay, and I'm Lynn Trafford, presenting Hawke's Bay scientists on air on behalf of the Hawke's Bay branch of the Royal Society, T.R. Parangi. This program is your opportunity to meet practicing and recently retired scientists from around the Bay. With me in the studio today is Dr. Jason Johnson, the science team leader for quality and storage insights at Plant and Food Research in Hawke's Bay. Dr. Johnson has 20-plus years of research experience and aims to develop new systems, technologies and knowledge that enhance the quality and supply chain resilience of fresh produce from New Zealand. Dr. Johnson grew up surrounded by market gardens in a small Bay of Plenty town and went to Massey University knowing that there would be a strong pull toward a career as a market gardener after his study. However, it was not toward the market gardens that a newly graduated Jason Johnson headed, but rather to crop and food research to see if a career in research would be for him. How did Dr. Jason Johnson from Makatu end up in Hawke's Bay? Let's find out. Hello, Jason. Hello, Lynn. It's great to be here. It's lovely to have you in the studio with us this morning. Born in Makatu. Correct, yes. Went to primary school there? Primary school in Makatu, and uh, then progressed on to intermediate and high school in Tipuki. In Tipuki. Now, if somebody doesn't know where Makatu is, can you just geographically locate this wee town for us, please? It's uh, one of those hidden gems uh, in the centre of coastal Bay of Plenty, roughly halfway between Whakatane, Tauranga, and I guess if you go inland, Rotorua. So it's a, it's kind of the uh, the intersection point of the bay, but oh, a but a, a quiet a gem. Very important town, a very important town, Jason. All right, tell me about schooling. Was there for you a moment at school when you thought, actually, I can have a career that's scientifically orientated? Was there a time like that for you at school, or did that come later on? I had uh, I did enjoy chemistry at high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found it really uh, cool to be able to play with solutions and do titrations and some of the mathematics that went with that. Um, I really enjoyed the the problem solving that that gave. So that gave me a bit of a inkling of science is cool. And and, and you it, discovered the periodic table. You told me off here. <laughs> yeah, I did as well. That was a uh, a bit of a Pandora's box of um, of yeah, a whole new set of learnings, which I really enjoyed. And actually, yeah, you draw on that today. It's in everything we do. So. It is. It is indeed. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. In 1993, off you go to Massey University in Palmerston North. What did you go down there to study, please? Yeah, so I went uh, down there to do a Bachelor of Horticultural Science uh, and... 
Yeah, I guess at that time my, my goal was to return back to the market garden, as you introduced. Uh, but yeah, I actually got exposed to quite a range of science topics down there, cell biology, biology, um, and I guess there was a bit of a, a eureka moment for me there where actually there's a place where science can actually be married up with horticulture. So for a lot of horticulture things, we, we do certain things, we grow plants certain ways, we handle them in certain ways, but for a lot of us it's we don't know why we do that. And so I guess science actually started to give me that background as to actually there is a reason why we do this. Yeah. And yeah. actually that's resonated through my career when I talk to people now. They quite often want to know, we're doing this, but Jason, why, why are we doing why? this? <laughs> it's um, a wonderful word, isn't it? Why? <laughs> you met a person who was to be a great mentor for you while you were doing your undergrad. Who was it that was so special for your life? Yep, so I've been very fortunate to have lots of great mentors, so I'm always a bit reluctant to, to point out the the one, but I think if I look in those early days, uh, Professor Errol Hewitt, so hopefully he, he, he listens to this show at some point, but um, yeah, he certainly was fantastic for giving me that enthusiasm. Um, he brought a personal side to science uh, around the challenges and going off to conferences and the debates that happen at conferences, the stories of the, you know, the winners that come up with the with the theories and the the, the people that have come up a bit short. Um, so yeah, so really, I guess made it an enjoyable and excitable topic, and and it was really relatable for me to say, well, this you know really locks in a career for me. So that's good. So thank I think you, people Errol. like Professor Hewitt are, are wonderful, aren't they? Really, we all need a one of those at just the right time in our lives. You get that degree and you skive off to crop and food research for a year. Now that was another turn on moment, wasn't it? It settled things for you. It provided a building block. Yeah, so that really gave me insights into you actually pay to do science then uh, once you're in that role, and it was a 12-month role, so very fortunate. Um, and, yeah, it gave me a good taste of what the research environment's like, and I enjoyed it. Uh, and, and I guess for me, I also uh, figured out pretty quickly that I enjoyed doing the science, but really to get to the next step in my career, it's developing that critical thinking and developing the science direction that said to me, you've got to go back to university and, and push on and to post And keep going, and yep. keep going. So 1998, back you go to Massey University to do your PhD. Did you pick the topic you were going to study, or did somebody recommend a topic to you? How did that come about, please? Yeah, so I talked to quite a few professors at, at Massey, and they, there was a list of topics there um, that, I could, that I could choose. In the end, uh, there was one that stood out for me because it had a direct connection back to the horticulture sector so I could see how the science could benefit um, horticulture pretty quickly. And, of course, uh, Professor Errol Hewitt was, was the He'd professor right in charge there, of that. He? And so <laughs> I, I could see we'd make a good team as well. So it was a double tick in my book. So what did you choose? So this uh, project was really about what makes apples crisp and juicy. Uh, most, uh, most people at home there 
dislike apples that are that are soft and mealy. Um, and so back when I was doing that research project, we had a lot of varieties that were really prone to being terrible in terms of their eating experience. So, so the project really is about um, making sure that we can deliver apples that are crisp and juicy and excite consumers and want to go back for more. Yeah, exactly right. And I think these days we have come to expect an apple that is just like that. Yeah. Have we not? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I guess we all know that there's a lot of research that's gone into producing those apples, but we don't even think about that. You pick up an apple, you bite into it, yum. Yep. And occasionally you get a bad experience, and that just brings to the fore how wonderful a nice, crisp and juicy apple really, really is. Yep, exactly. And back when I started, you had, I guess, Granny Smith, which was traditionally a, a really good keeper and good texture. Probably a little bit acid for some people. So yeah, I, I know it's some my people like one. the acid, but some people find <laughs> it a bit acidic. Yeah. But when you went outside of that, you were pretty much into the galas and the Cox's Orange Pippins yeah. uh, varieties, which back then were quite prone to, to, to going soft and, and dry. So. So we've come a long way since then, uh, and I guess we sometimes forget when we go into our supermarkets now just how far we do. We've and we come. get grumpy, Jason, don't we? If we pick up even one in a bag that is not a hundred percent perfect, we become very well-educated consumers. All right, you do the PhD, you come to Hawke's Bay during that period of study and yes. after. Yes. What were you looking at in the bay at that time? Was it still just crisp and juicy? This is still crisp and juicy. Um, But obviously a big part of the apple industry is in Hawke's Bay. And if we're really trying to understand what makes apples crisp and juicy, then getting a handle on what the growers are doing and how that influences that, um, as well as the the cool operators and and all that's all pretty critical. So, So coming to the Hawke's Bay was really important for me to a, do the research, but also understand um, what makes the industry tick in terms of the people and, and what they're actually doing. Uh, no point doing the research without that bit, is there? Really? Exactly. I mean, that's the most important part. If you've not got the growers, yep. there's no point in doing yep. that kind of research. So, yeah, good. The conclusion to the PhD, was there one for you? Yep. So, um, so on a knowledge front, um, we actually did get into the you know the cell science of what makes apples crisp and juicy, which was which was really cool. So, a lot of people obviously um, use pectin for making homemade jams, but pectin's really important for apples texture, crisp and juicy as well. So, we had some really good learnings in the science behind that. Um, but in terms of the outcomes for industry, yeah, we developed some pretty cool mathematical models uh, which effectively gave a sell-by date um, for the apples back then and so um, those that were exporting the apples could then rank them in terms of which ones to sell first which ones to sell last or you might get a phone call where something's happened offshore Uh, there's been a break in the call chain and they want to understand what impact that could have had and so the models were able to help help people through that process absolutely and I don't know where we'd be without them today it's just the most important thing to have isn't it yet another tool yet another tool 2002 a great leap forward year for you you skive off at a tangent where do you go yeah so uh, my wife and I made the pack um, to we wanted to have an overseas experience and uh, 
whoever got the, the first good job uh, was where we were going to land, and uh, my wife beat me by a week. So, um, so we ended up in Scotland, uh, and I think a week later, after we accepted her role in Scotland, I got a letter accepting me for a position at Cornell. Um, I cannot believe you turned down <laughs> Cornell. I just, just when you told me that while we were having a cup of coffee, I thought it was the funniest thing ever. Not very many people would turn down Cornell and then sit and laugh about it, Jason. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess at the time you're sort of thinking, was the pack to go? You know, the first place is the right move. But actually, when I look back on that experience. Was, I grew a lot from the Scotland uh, scenario. It took me out of the Apple world a bit and into some of the areas which I've been. What able were to you studying in Scotland? So the uh, Scottish project was actually a conservation project, and it was using cryopreservation to look after endangered um, horticultural crop um, species. So in Scotland, our job was to look after black currants and of course there's a lot of black currant breeding in Scotland. Um, we had other partners involved in other parts of Europe uh, and France so we're looking after coffee, Belgium they had bananas, Italy had almonds and apples and so yeah we're actually all working together on coming up with the best ways for looking after this critically important germplasm. At that stage a lot of the collections were in the field and as you know, you can get diseases and weather events which can take those out. So, so anyway, so it was a really fun, important project, um, and I learnt a lot about stress biology. So that's from the plant perspective, not my perspective. I would say I don't think you would count that much, would you? It's all, it's all about the plant. It's all about the plant. Four years of research there. I, I would think that was a, a jolly good release from apples and to give you an opportunity to have a look at something else is never such a bad thing to do. It, it just focuses the mind apart from anything else as to what is going to happen next. 2006, you come back to Auckland to Hort Research up there. Back to the crisp and juicy? Absolutely. What were we doing in Auckland? Yeah, so this was... Um one of the one of the challenges we have in the research side of things is having people eat fruit is the ultimate and asking them what they think and giving you all the sensory information uh, is really key but there is a limit to how many pieces of fruit anyone can eat and so it become pretty important to come up with um, instrumental measures or machines that can mimic or, or, or tell us or predict what a person might think in terms of that uh, that sensory quality. So uh, one of the areas that we're working on, and it's quite relevant given I've got a microphone sitting in front of me now, but um, we were actually putting microphones next to apples and starting to break open the apples. Uh, and when you when a person's eating an apple, that initial crisp crunch sound in the mouth is, is quite important to their perception. So obviously how firm it is important, but that... That bite into it. That yeah. sound experience is yep. really important it for is. how people enjoy it. And mm. so for us, it seemed a natural thing to say, well, let's try and measure the sound. So rather than someone's tooth breaking it open, we've got a machine breaking it open. Uh, so, so yeah, so the running joke at that stage was we're torturing apples and uh, listening to them scream. I have never interviewed an apple. It must have, you, you've got one on me there, Jason. You've interviewed thousands of apples, and I've never interviewed one of them. However, there comes a time, 2014, when Hawke's Bay is going to pull you back here. 
What happened? What sort of a role were you taking on in 2014 in Hawke's Bay? Yeah, I, um, during my PhD career, I obviously came to Hawke's Bay and loved it. Um, always used to be disappointed at the weather when we went back through the Manawatu Gorge to Palmerston North. Um, and when I was in Auckland, I'd travel down here a fair bit as well and, and, and really enjoy the district. So I was really fortunate there was a position that came up in Hawke's Bay, which I applied for. Um, it was sort of, it was a good time for me to have a have a bit of a shift. I'd been in Auckland for seven years and felt like I was ready for, for a new challenge, so Hawke's Bay provided that. And, uh, and yeah, the position here was really honing in on the new variety work and I, every new variety that comes out of our breeding program has its own uh, boutique set of uh, harvest and storage requirements and so my job become working through what that looks like. Can we talk for a minute here about the history New Zealand has of freezing our food? We're a long way from any market, e- even to take produce across to Australia is not a close thing. If you were back in in Dundee, you've got markets with huge populations virtually right next door. We haven't. So we had to freeze stuff, didn't we, to send it away. Can can you just remind us a little bit of the history of that? Because we were at the forefront of freezing, particularly meat, I suppose. Yeah, New Zealand pioneers on, on lots of fronts. So carriage of frozen meat was obviously a really big thing for New Zealand that opened up export to to the other side of the world without that we wouldn't have gone down that path and the innovative culture of New Zealand then meant other industries started to look at and say well with refrigeration what can we achieve and so fresh exports of fruit um, became a, a, a big thing. So in the 1920s, there was quite an expansion of the apple industry in New Zealand. Very quickly, uh, the number of apples exceeded what we could eat domestically, and so offshore became a, a really important um, market and a long way to go. Uh, yeah, the, the innovation that, that, that the people achieved back then to achieve that is quite miraculous. When I think the tools that I've got now... And think back to what they worked with back then. It's quite remarkable to achieve what they did. They did. They would have had strong mathematical models, though, but they would have had to keep them in their slide rules and in their heads, I guess. I suspect so. <laughs> they probably had uh, rules of thumb, I suspect. Uh, yep. which, you know, they would have. And yeah. a jolly good analysis as to what was actually going on in their, in their local area. Apples and pears were important at that time, weren't they? I guess they still are, aren't they? When you think of the irony of it, here we are. Uh, we've come a long way since the 1950s, but we still place huge cognizance on apples and pears. Yep, we, we do. do. And, and our, our apple industry is, is rated number one in the world in terms of for a number of metrics and there's a lot you know a lot of reasons to why it is number one in the world today and that innovation culture probably over the hundred years is 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 really part of that it's why isn't it and they've had to adapt to quite you know they can't just use a recipe in europe you know and apply something that's designed in europe for europe that's they've actually had to figure it out no we've got ten thousand miles to get something from here to there and it's got to arrive there in a condition that a consumer wants our product to be. 
But cold is not always good for our products, is it? Yep. Uh, cold is, is, is your friend and it can be your foe. So, yeah. um, so what happens when it goes wrong? So uh, probably the, the example that I jump to pretty quickly is, is bananas. So those of you who are banana cake lovers <laughs> know that when your bananas, if you put them in the fridge, they turn black and brown pretty fast. Pretty quickly, yeah. And that's where you get it's chilling injury. So it's not a, it's not a, a fungal rot or anything. It's actually um, just a chilling stress. It's, it's not freezing stress, it's just that one step before it, and so that banana's not happy and it turns brown. So um, apples uh, can be similar, although they, um, you know, they don't get that chilling injury until a much lower temperature. So some of them are fine, some of them are, are not fine. So we have to go to come up with the, the way of identifying those and then adjusting their, their cool storage accordingly. So all this leads to what you referred to off-air as optimum facilities for storage. Do we have different kinds of storage for different kinds of apples, or is an apple an apple an apple? It's, um, it's one of those things behind the scenes. Uh, everything is, is, every recipe is different for every apple variety. So... Um, and even within the apple variety, you'll find that there's a need for some different recipes as well. Uh, so it's, we talk about having um, personalised or tailored nutrition or medical programs for us. Um, believe it or not, plants and fruit are just about the same. Uh, they, they, they have their own needs. And so for us, it's really important to understand what those needs are so that we have a, an apple that looks perfect at the other end and, and not have problems and and this comes back to the earlier discussion about New Zealand we are good because we deliver the best quality we can't deliver half quality it's got to be the best quality so all of this work that goes in behind the scenes to do that is is really important so there's quite an emphasis these days on technology yep which there wasn't quite the same extent, obviously, because we didn't have that know-how. What is one of the main functions of technology today? Okay, it's got to keep things at the right temperature, but what else sits behind that? Yep, so technology is evolving also into... So, so it's one part is keeping apples crisp and juicy, so that's one part of it, but the other part of technology is it's... Um, also telling you if problems are happening in cool stores so uh, you can't go into a cool store and inspect every apple every day and see how they're going you actually need technology in there to to tell you um, how things are performing and and which apples you need to start looking at selling more quickly so it's the technology starting to give us that sell by date or that use by date um, which you can't do by eye so the use of technology is actually starting right at the time you plant the tree, isn't it, really? Yep. From the time you plant the tree, through the harvest, through the post-harvest, through the exporting, because let's face it, a lot of stuff is exported, right till we get this to wherever the apples and such likes are going to, and the technology will kick in again there, won't it? Absolutely. And... It's a really hot area at the moment, technology and automation. So I think over the next 10 years we're going to see 
a big explosion of more of it more of it and um all the way along the chain and we'll have more visibility over what's going on over that fruit and more mathematical models for the up-and-coming phd students to develop yeah, I don't think there'll be any shortage of, um, of models for people to work on in the future. So there won't be, will there? Mm. Mm. But computer science, mathematics, robotics, plant scientists, all those areas, they're all going to have to work together they to are. come up with uh, what's going to be a really awesome system for, for horticulture. And we'll be at the forefront of that. Thank you, Dr. Jason Johnson, the science team leader for quality and storage insights at Plant and Food Research in Hawke's Bay. Thank you for being my guest on Hawke's Bay Scientists on Air. Should you wish to follow up on any of the topics discussed with Dr. Johnson today, start by visiting the website of Massey University and look at the topics for study and research on offer there. Similarly, a look at Plant and Food's website is interesting to see what research is currently being undertaken. The lecture program on offer by the Hawke's Bay branch of the Royal Society is similarly online. You are welcome to attend any of these lectures. Please join me every Monday morning at 9.30 to meet another interesting, practising or recently retired science from around the Bay. I'm Lynn Trafford. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thank you to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.